Let's open God's Word this evening to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, we will begin reading at verse 17 and read through verse 40. And the context is that it has not rained in Israel for three years according to the word of Elijah. And now God has told Elijah to go back to confront Ahab and to call for this contest on Mount Carmel that we read about this evening. 1 Kings 18, beginning at verse 17. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal four hundred and fifty, and the prophets of the groves four hundred which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow Him. But if Balaam, then follow Him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under, and I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many, and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal, from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us! But there was no voice, nor any that answered, and they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he's in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. 
And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullocks in pieces, the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that Thou art God in Israel, and that I am Thy servant, and that I have done all these things at Thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that Thou art the Lord God, and that Thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them. And Elijah brought them down to the book Kishon and slew them there. Thus far, we read God's Word tonight. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 34. Lord's Day 34, question 92 asks, what is the law of God? And what follows are the Ten Commandments that we heard this morning. Question 93, how are these commandments divided into two tables, the first of the of which teaches us how we must behave towards God, the second, what duties we owe to, to our neighbor? What does God enjoin in the first commandment? That I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, avoid and flee from all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints, or any other creatures, and learn rightly to know the only true God. Trust in Him alone. With humility and patience, submit to Him and expect all good things from Him only. Love, fear, and glorify Him with my whole heart so that I renounce and forsake all creatures rather than commit even the least thing contrary to His will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested Himself in His Word 
to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. How long halt ye between two opinions? That was the piercing and probing question that came to Israel as they stood on the top of Mount Carmel. And that's the question that comes to Hope Protestant Reformed Church as we sit together in this sanctuary. How long halt ye between two opinions? That is, how long will you imagine that true joy and happiness can be found somewhere other than Jehovah God? How long will you imagine that your contentment, your satisfaction in life can be found in some creature here below, some thing that you possess, some person in your life? That's an important question. Because the truth of God's Word is that there is only one who can satisfy those deepest longings and desires of our hearts, namely, our God in Christ Jesus. And it's so important that we see that. Because it's when we have that perspective that the first commandment goes from being viewed as this restrictive demand or this chore that I have to perform and becomes instead the way of wisdom. A reminder from God Himself. There is only one place, only one person to whom you can go to have your soul satisfied and it's God Himself in Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to see and to be reminded of this evening as we begin the Catechism's treatment of the Ten Commandments. Catechism has already brought up the Ten Commandments in the, I should say, has already brought up God's law in the first section of the Catechism, the section on the knowledge of our sin and misery. And it brought up God's law there because the law does serve to show us our sinfulness. But now the Catechism circles back to the law in the third section, the section concerning our gratitude, how we can show it to our God, because the law also sets before us what a life of thankful obedience looks like. And it's here that the Catechism explains more fully the Ten Commandments. And so for the next several weeks, really months, we will be going through each of the Ten Commandments one by one to understand their meaning, their significance, and how they apply to our lives. And this evening we begin with the First Commandment and the important reminder to find our satisfaction in God, not in idols. The theme for this evening's sermon is finding satisfaction in God, not idols. First, the prohibition against idols. Second, the vanity of idols. 
And then third, turning away from idols. In the first commandment, God forbids having any other God. We know the language. Thou shalt have no other gods before Me. But it's important to understand that standing behind the prohibition, the commandment itself, is a reason for it. And the reason for it is that there is only one God, and thus there's only one who can satisfy our souls. There is only one God. That's the clear testimony of Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It's telling us there's but one God. Psalm 86, verse 10, For thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. And Isaiah 46, verse 9, For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like Me. And this is what God was reminding Israel on the top of Mount Carmel that day. When through the prophet Elijah, he called the nation of Israel to assemble on the top of this mountain to witness a contest between Jehovah God and between Baal. Which God can send fire from heaven? And though every... um, advantage was given to Baal and his prophets, and though every conceivable disadvantage was given to Jehovah God and his prophet Elijah, there was only one who could send fire from heaven, namely Jehovah God and him alone. There is only one God. And every other so-called God is but the invention of human hands and human thinking. And it's for that reason that there really are no other gods. There's only one that this commandment comes to us. Thou shalt have no other gods. But now it goes deeper than that. Not just that there is only one God, but the the clear implication is that there is therefore only one who can satisfy your soul. And that too is the clear testimony of Scripture. We've been singing the various psalms that express this truth. For example, Psalm 63, verse 3, Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. That is, knowing and experiencing God's loving kindness is better than anything that this life has to offer. It's the one thing that can satisfy our souls. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. We'll sing this after the sermon. Whom have I in heaven but Thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside Thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist is saying there's nothing else that my heart desires. There's nothing else that my heart needs because I I find everything in God Himself. He satisfies my soul. One more, Psalm 81, verse 10. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. God here is telling us to come to Him, and He will satisfy all of our needs, all of our longings. He will grant us what we stand in need of. And all of this shows us very clearly 
that God alone can satisfy our souls. He alone can provide for us the the things that we stand in need of. Our daily bread and everything else that supports our physical lives. God alone can protect us, guard us, keep us safe. And God alone can give us true joy and happiness and that sense of peace and rest and contentment. And all this stands behind, undergirds the first commandment. And it's so important that we see this because otherwise we're going to view this commandment as restrictive. Otherwise we're going to view it as some chore I have to perform when in reality, God is simply directing us to Himself. He's reminding us of this fundamental truth. I alone am God and I alone can satisfy your soul. And it's for that reason there is the prohibition against any and of against having any other God. Basically what he's saying is do not be so foolish as to look elsewhere for your contentment, for your happiness, for your satisfaction, but find that in me. Or to use the language of the catechism, we ought not trust in anyone or anything else besides God. That's question answer 95. What is idolatry? Idolatry is instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested Himself in His Word to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. Trust for provision. This is the thing that's going to to ensure that I have bread on the table every day. This is the thing that's going to provide all that I stand in need of. Or trust for protection. This is what's going to keep me safe. This is what's going to ensure that nothing bad happens to me. Or maybe it's trust for happiness. This is what's going to give me contentment and joy in life. That's idolatry. That's having another God. And in the first commandment, God is prohibiting all of it. He's saying instead of looking elsewhere, Find your satisfaction in me and in me alone to the exclusion of those other things. That was the point at Mount Carmel. How long halt ye between two opinions? The figure there, the halting, is uh, the figure of a man whose ankles or knees are out of joint. So that as he tries to walk, first he's going this way and then he's going that way and he, he's back and forth. He's trying to have it both ways. And that's what Israel thought they could do. We can serve Baal part of the time and we can serve the Lord the other part of the time and we can have the best of both. And with this confrontation at Mount Carmel, God is saying absolutely not. If the Lord be God, follow Him, serve Him. If Baal be God, follow Him, serve Him. Quit trying to have it both ways. For God calls us to give Him our exclusive devotion. Now to be clear, 
That does not mean that it's inherently wrong to find joy in the things of this life. To find joy in one's vocation. To find joy in one's family or a hobby or some other good thing. And it's not inherently wrong because these things are really gifts from God Himself. As a part of His love for us, as a part of His care for us, He gives us many good gifts. And He gives them to us for our enjoyment. But the key is, we must never depend on these things for our happiness. We must must never fall into thinking that I must have this in order to find contentment. We are not to rely on these good gifts or the things of this life for our satisfaction. Instead, we need to recognize these good gifts as coming from God. And rather than setting our hearts on the gifts themselves, we're to receive them as tokens from the giver and set our hearts on the one who bestowed these gifts upon us. So the prohibition here is that we are to have no other gods. All idolatry is strictly forbidden. So how are we doing? Never mind the rain outside. How are we doing with this commandment? There's a temptation for us to imagine that we are guiltless here. To think that when it comes to this prohibition against idols that I'm doing pretty well. And we might have that temptation when we read a passage like 1 Kings 18. Because in 1 Kings 18, the idolatry, at least the idolatry on the foreground, is the worship of Baal and his counterpart Ashtaroth. They had little statue, statues, images that they fell down and worshipped. And we're tempted to think, well, I have no little statues that I worship in my home. I do not serve Buddha or any of the Hindu gods, and therefore I am guiltless when it comes to the first first commandment. We might also fall into that thinking if, for example, we only read the first half of question and answer 94. Answer 94 of the Catechism says that we are to, that as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, we're to avoid and flee from all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints, or any other creatures. What the Catechism is doing here is addressing those forms of idolatry that were prevalent in the 16th century when the Catechism was written. And thus it speaks of things like sorcery, soothsaying, superstition. It's talking about all occultic practices. The belief in the supernatural and the attempts to harness the supernatural to 
to tap into it as it were. And then it also speaks of invocation of saints and other creatures. It's laying its finger on the idolatry of the Roman Catholic Church and they're appealing to Mary and trying to go through her to God. And when we read this, we might think, well, I'm good here too. Not drawn to occultic practices. Not pursuing those things that go bump in the night. Nor am I ever tempted to worship Mary or to try to call upon some saint up there and suppose that he or she will answer my prayers. There's a temptation for us to think we are guiltless when it comes to the first commandment. But the reality is that we too are guilty. We have many idols in our hearts. And if you do not believe me, then let me ask some questions. Questions that help us to see, to identify the idols of our hearts. If I were to ask you, fill in the blank, if only I had, then I would be happy. What comes to mind? It may well be an idol. Or, we find those are idols when we find ourselves thinking, I would give anything to have this thing or that thing. Well, this thing or that thing then is probably an idol. Or another way to see it is if we find ourselves thinking, all of these other things profit me nothing unless I have, and then fill in that blank. And it's probably an idol. When we start to think, my happiness, my contentment, my satisfaction in life depends on this thing or that thing, then it's an idol. And the other way to see it is when God maybe takes away certain things in our lives that have grown so big in importance that they've really become idols for us. So that if something's removed from my life, I respond in anger against God. How dare you take that away? I need that in my life. My life depends on that. Well, that's an idol. It's trusting in someone or something other than God to provide for us, to protect us, to make us happy. So what is it for you, child of God? What is that thing that you must have that you cannot live without? Is it money? Possessions? So that your sense of security is connected to the size of your bank account? So that your sense of satisfaction comes from hitting checkout at Amazon or bringing home your latest purchase from the store? 
Or is it physical health? And fitness, having a certain body. And that idol gets exposed when God takes it away through the form of sickness or an injury or something like that. How do we respond? Perhaps it's entertainment. When your heart is overwhelmed, is that where you turn? Instead of praying the prayer, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, do you say, lead me to the couch so I can sit down with the screen in front of me and drown away all of my sorrow in this program? Perhaps it's sports. Whether the sports you play or the sports you follow. How often is our mood wrapped up in how our team did so that our happiness depends on the final score? Perhaps it's an adventure. Some vacation. Some thrill. So that we find ourselves thinking, if only I could go on this trip, then I would be happy. If only I had more time for this hobby, then I could be content. Or is it some other idol? Is it the idol of a relationship? Having a family, good things. Do not misunderstand me. Legitimate things, good things. But young people, young adults, do you find yourself thinking, I would give anything to have him, to have her? Or is it, if only I were married, then I could be content. If only I had children, then I could be satisfied. If that's the case, then that legitimate desire has grown so big that it has swelled into an idol. One more. And one perhaps we are all guilty of. The desire to have others notice us and think highly of us. That desire for attention and affirmation. What happens when you don't get it? Are you devastated? When it seems that no one sees you, no one hears you, and no one cares about you. Then we may well have made an idol about what others think about me. Insofar as we think, I must have this or that to be happy. I need this in order to be content. This 
has become an idol. And thus we're led to see we are far from guiltless with regards to this commandment. Our hearts are full of so many idols. And so that we might be so that we might turn away from them eventually, we first need to see the vanity of idolatry. And the vanity of idols is that they cannot satisfy the soul. They never actually give what they promise. And instead, they bring us harm. And that's what God was showing to the nation of Israel as they stood there on the top of Mount Carmel. God was making clear, Baal could not give what he promised. For you understand that Baal was a fertility god. That is, Baal was responsible for giving children, but more than that, he was the one who was to make the earth fertile, and he did that by sending rain and storms. That's what Baal was good at, supposedly. Those were the things that he did. He sent rain and storms. And at Mount Carmel, God is helping the people to see He cannot give what He promises. He cannot deliver. Because for three years, there has not been one drop of rain. The people have been crying out to Baal, Oh, Baal, hear us! Send rain! The crops are failing! The animals are dying! And there was no rain. And then at Mount Carmel, there's this contest to see which God could send fire. Prepare your bullock, you prophets of Baal, and then you cry out to Him. And what are they asking for? They're asking for a lightning bolt. And remember, this is what He does! This is his home turf. This is what he's good at, supposedly. But though they cry out to him again and again and again for hours, he cannot satisfy. He cannot give what he promised. There's vanity that's being exposed. The folly of it all. But the vanity runs deeper. It's not just that Baal or really any idol cannot give what it promises. But more than that, they bring us harm. What did the prophets do to themselves? Verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. They were cutting themselves. They were stabbing themselves. Not just a a little nick for a few drops of blood, but they're stabbing themselves. Blood is gushing out, says the Word of God. And this was their normal practice to try to get His attention. The language is that they did this after their manner. This is how you get Baal to wake up. You hurt yourself. Showing us that This idolatry brings harm. 
And in all of this, what God is doing is showing that these idol gods cannot satisfy our needs. They cannot give us what they promise, but they instead bring us harm. And that applies not just to Baal. That applies to every idol. They cannot give you true joy or lasting happiness. Maybe Maybe a moment of pleasure but it's so fleeting. It's gone in a moment. They cannot satisfy the soul. They do not answer our cries. That too comes out in this history. I meant to read this verse a moment ago with regards to not being able to give what they promised. Verse 29 with regards to Baal after they've been crying out all day long. We read at the end of the verse that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. Notice the emphasis there. It's repeated three times and put in three different ways. Neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. They cannot satisfy our souls. But instead, what they do is they bring us harm. Because our idols require that we give and give and give. That we sacrifice our time, our energy, our resources, our abilities for the sake of serving this idol. Until we're left with nothing. They require that we do damage to our lives. And it's true of every single idol. Go back through the list. Money, possessions. Well, how many relationships have been destroyed because someone is so focused on the pursuit of the almighty dollar? How often is it not the case that we're drawn away from time with our families and the people who really matter? And for what? What good is all that money going to do us at the day of our death? There's no comfort in death that can come from money or possessions. What about physical health? Fitness, a certain body? Well, there too... That idol requires that we give and give and give so that we have a phrase that we speak of all of the blood, sweat, and tears that went into this. For what? For someone to notice us with a passing glance? How fleeting! And no matter how physically fit we may be, Every one of us will begin to succumb to the injuries, to the illnesses, to the effects of old age. What about entertainment? Oh, how much it takes. It takes our time. It takes away our mental capabilities. And it takes away 
a perspective of what reality is like. And thus leaves us perpetually disappointed that my life does not turn out with that fairy tale ending like their lives do on the screen. Sports. Oh yes, it may give you an afternoon and evening of happiness. But come morning, it's gone. And just as often, if not more often, the failures of our team leave us devastated, crushed, and disappointed. This is true of adventures, vacations, thrills. Again, they may well give you that momentary pleasure. But it's so fleeting. We try to hold on to it. We, we take all the pictures, the, the videos. We go back and we think, oh, what good times. But the reality is the moment's gone. And now we're just left pining away for the next one. What about relationships, family? These can be a good gift. And there is indeed joy to be found in a relationship in marriage and having children. But even here, no matter how wonderful this person may seem while you are dating him or her, the reality is that he or she is a sinner. And your children, no matter how beautiful, no matter how innocent they appear when they, they're first born, they too have foolishness bound up in their heart and therefore there's going to be sin in the relationship. There's going to be the disappointments. And therefore, it's folly to let our happiness depend on some person. And the same applies to receiving attention and affirmation from others. How we long for others to take notice of us, to think highly of us. But even if someone didn't, that interaction is soon over and we're left starving for more. And then there are all the times when no one did notice. And if my happiness depends on being noticed, then I am left devastated, crushed that no one did. Every idol, every other God cannot give what it promises, but instead it only brings us harm and may God help us to see it. He did at Mount Carmel. There's a reason the prophets of Baal have to go first so that Israel sees the utter folly of what they're doing. And praise be to God, He does the same in our lives. Oh, it can be painful. We may even become bitter against God in the process. What are you doing? Why are you taking this away from me? I need that. God, this is unpleasant that, that I don't have this. 
But if that's what He's doing in our lives, it's an act of pure mercy to help us to see, to open our eyes to the vanity, to the folly of it all so that we fall down on our knees and cry out, Lord, I'm a sinner. Though I've never bowed the knee to Baal or Ashtaroth, I've bowed the knee to so many other gods. I'm guilty of sins against the first commandment. Lord, forgive. That's where he wants to bring us. And praise be to God, there is forgiveness. Even as we see it in this history, Baal could not send fire. But Jehovah God did. Not just a lightning bolt, but an entire pillar of fire. But now the key is, whom did that come upon? It did not fall on God's people. That pillar of fire certainly deserved to fall upon them. For every one of them was guilty of idolatry, whether or not they had bowed the knee to Baal or not. Every Israelite that stood upon the top of Mount Carmel deserved that fiery wrath, God's judgment, to descend, to fall upon them. But it did not fall upon them. It fell upon the sacrifice. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And this was a sin offering. That's evident from the time of day. This was during the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice is the sin offering. And what all of this is pointing us to is uh, the saving work of Jesus Christ. The One who went to the cross of Calvary. Where His blood was shed. Where He laid down His life. It was there that God poured out His wrath upon His Son. It's as though fire fell from heaven. For Jesus Christ had to endure the agonies, the torments of hell itself. So that after it was all done, He cried out, I thirst. And enduring God's wrath for us, He thereby paid the debt that we owe so that there's forgiveness in Him. And a forgiveness that's not based on anything I have to do. That too is a part of this history. 
Because whose blood is shed here in 1 Kings 18? Oh yes, the prophets of Baal are stabbing themselves, but God does not require his people to do that. He does not say you have to harm yourself, you have to afflict yourself before I'll ever forgive you. There's no atonement that we have to make. Nor is there anything we have to contribute, any works that we have to perform that comes out from the altar that Elijah assembles. Verse 31, And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar. These are uncut stones. He doesn't first take a chisel to them to to make them just the right size, but they're uncut. He's contributed nothing. And all of this points to the salvation that we have apart from anything that we must do. It's a salvation that depends exclusively on the work of Jesus Christ. His perfect satisfaction. His perfect obedience. So that in Christ we have salvation. Child of God, do you see how totally opposite this is? In comparison to all the, the idolatry that we so readily pursue by nature, do you see the contrast? With the idols, they fail to give us what we need. They cannot satisfy, but instead they require that we give and give and give. They require, they demand of us everything. Well, the message of the gospel is the exact opposite. Because the message of the gospel is that God required everything of his son. So that Jesus Christ had to give and give and give to give his blood, to give his life at the cross of Calvary. Why? So that in Christ Jesus, we might be given everything. All of the blessings that he's earned. Life with God. The only one who can satisfy our souls. We're given everything that we stand in need of physically and spiritually. We're given protection and safety. And now knowing that, how long halt ye between two opinions? How long are we going to try to have it both ways? Let us turn away from our idols and turn unto our Savior, Jesus Christ. We must first of all turn away from all of our idols. That's the first part of conversion. The, the negative, according to the catechism, as it taught us in Lord's Day 33. And we do see that turning away here in this history at the very end. For verse 40 says, And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let, no, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the book Brook Kishon and slew them there. 
though it may have only been outward. This was a turning away from sin. This was a saying, we're done with Baal worship. And yes, they will go back. But at least in this moment, there was a mortification, a putting to death of that sin in the nation of Israel. And the same must be true in our lives. And as we saw last week, that begins with true repentance. Being sorry for my sins and seeking forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. Rending our hearts and then taking with us words. A prayer acknowledging our sin, our guilt. And then as we come to know the wonder of forgiveness in Jesus Christ, let us then also hate and flee all idolatry. That means for the idols that are sinful in and of themselves, we must take them down to the brook and slay them, put them away entirely, make it destroy them, make it impossible to go back to them. And for the idols that are things that are legitimate in themselves, this means a grace-empowered struggle to keep those things in their proper place. We must turn away from idols and instead positively turn unto our God and to His Son, Jesus Christ, in whom alone there is salvation. The forgiveness of sins for all that we've done wrong as well as the, the righteousness that we need to be accepted before our God. It's not just salvation that we look to, that we look for in Jesus Christ. It's our satisfaction. That's where we started in the first point. There's only one God, and God alone can satisfy my soul. And He satisfies our souls in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. So it's only in Him that there is this joy, this happiness, this contentment. Do you believe that? Anything you might desire. That's a good, legitimate desire. It's found in Christ. Do you desire to be rich? Then look to Christ. For in Him are found all of the riches of salvation that He procured for us by His death. Look to Christ because He is the One who blesses us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places so that in Christ Jesus we are spiritual billionaires. Is it health you desire? A certain body? Then look to Christ. 
The one who on the one hand gives us spiritual health. So that though the outward man may well perish, we are renewed in the inner man day after day after day. And as for our bodies, though they will be laid in the grave, He will one day raise those dead bodies and change our vile bodies and make them like unto His glorious resurrection body. He's going to give us a body that's fit for heaven. Is it adventure? Is it entertainment that you want? What's more thrilling to the soul than the whole story of redemption? A story that includes God's own Son coming into this world, clothing Himself with our humanity to die on a cross. Is it a family you want? Is it a relationship? Well, in Christ Jesus, we are adopted into God's own family so that we have the God in heaven as our Father. We have Jesus Christ as our elder brother and we have every other Christian as a spiritual brother, as a spiritual sister in Jesus Christ. And if it's attention that you want, someone to notice you, someone to hear you, well, look to Christ. Because you have the King of all glory. The most important man in the whole universe looking down upon you with eyes of love. He never takes his eye off of you. He never stops noticing you, child of God. And he hears you when you cry out to him. And he's with you by his Spirit. Everything that you may well want, it's found in Christ. So look to Him. And find in Him your joy, your happiness, your contentment. And let Him satisfy your soul. So when we have this perspective of the first commandment, that rather than being a chore, it's instead a privilege. And may God use this knowledge for us as a congregation and for you, child of God, to turn us away from the vanity, the folly of idolatry and to turn unto Jesus Christ by faith. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the good news of the Gospel. For Thy law comes to us and sets before us Thy requirements. And we recognize that we cannot meet them. We are sinners. And thus we look to Christ, the One who kept the law in our place. And we pray that Thou will work in us to look to Christ not only for our salvation, but for the satisfaction of our souls.
Hear this prayer for His sake. Amen.